Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And right now, Father, we're going to call on the Holy Spirit to help us recall the things that we want to say that's pleasing to you and perhaps edifying to some of the people that may be here. And we want to give you the praise for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this, uh, do I have the camera fixed up right? that okay? Yes, you're, you're great. Okay. I'll try to speak loudly, but if you can't hear me, tell me. Or if I'm speaking too loud, tell me. And we'll kind of adjust. Now, this uh, funny old man that's sitting before you was uh, born in uh, December 28, 1924. And uh, that makes me 95 years old. And a woman asked me once how I, what, what I contribute my long life to. And I told her, the first thing you have to do is uh, find parents that have longevity genes. And that's really the secret. So I think that's my secret. My cousin yesterday had her 100th birthday. My father died on his 99th birthday. I doubt very much if I'll make either one because of the problems that I had uh, through the storms of life and so forth. Now I'm kind of convinced that, I'm kind of convinced that to know the person, the whole person, you need to find out the little things in life that contributed to him as he went along. So my first memories was in a little town, it's a little hamlet town of North Wayne, Maine, and uh, my father worked in the North Wayne Two Company there. Uh, it was, oh, probably in 1925, 26, right through there. I just want to tell you just a little bit about North Wayne. It's a little hamlet town of about 500 people. And my father worked in the North Wayne Tool Company. They made uh, scythes and sickles and axes for uh, farmers that were hand tools for farmers that were working on farms and so forth. Well, in 1928, the Great Depression was a shadow that was coming along very fastly. In 1929, the little factory shut down because the Great Depression was upon us. In 1930, it was a full-blown depression. Now, I don't know if you can imagine how a family of six, father, mother, and four children, 
ever could have survived such a difficult time, we were instantly very, very poor. I mean, instantly. We had absolutely nothing. And how the family got through that, I really do not know. But you know, they have a lot of resources that they can call on. Now, I wasn't, my father wasn't saved. My mother wasn't saved. And uh, I never heard about God at any time in my life. But I want to tell you in a minute what happened to me after we moved over on Old Farm. But back to North Wayne, there was a, a man that lived next door to us. His name was Els Crosby. He did, uh, he was a painter. He was a writer. Uh, he didn't paint houses. He painted landscape portraits and things like that. A nice old man. And he was also a collector of Civil War guns. One day he took me, well, he used to read to me from his classical books and the Bible and stuff. But one day he took me in a room and he had lined up on the room old Civil War guns. Matthew, Vanderhart, eat your heart out. Uh, they were, and then he told me the history of every single gun. And it was a great experience. And to this day, I think that's where I got the idea that I wanted to collect guns. So I had a small collection of, um, of uh, First World War guns. Uh, many of them are gone now, but I had a nice little collection that I collected over, over the years. So then, in uh, about, in 1932, I was eight years old. My father had bought a, an old farm. He paid $500 for it. It had 100 acres of land, and the land was divided kind of equally between uh, fields and a woodlot and, uh, and pasture land. Somehow we had a cow. Now that was in the fall and how we got through the winter, I do not know because winters in Maine is very cold. But we had wood, we had a stove and we kept warm. As, as time went on, we gradually uh, increased the herd. My father bought a team of horses. And my job was to take care of the horses, even when I was real, real young. Well, we was working in the woods all day long, and it gets dark about 4.30 in the late fall of the year in Maine. My father had taken a shortcut through the woods to get home, and I was to drive the horses uh, along the old road to go home. And on the way, I was looking up into the sky. 
thinking about God. Can you imagine that? I never heard about God that I can remember in my whole life. But there I was thinking about God. And later I said, now where did that come from? Well, now I know because John 1.9 says, that's the light that lights the heart of every man when he comes into the world. So I was thinking about God from an early age. And all through my career, I didn't really get saved until I was over 50 years old. But all through my career, I had uh, experiences that probably very few people ever had. Now the farm, I'd like to tell you a lot about it. Uh, they had no water, it had no electricity. Uh, it was just a building with a barn, a big barn and a carriage house. And uh, that was about all I, I want to say about the barn. And uh, now, in uh, 1943, I went in the army. I was glad because life on the farm was hard and I wanted to go in anyway, but the family was so poor, they needed everybody to pitch in to help. So naturally I stayed as long as I could. And then I went in the army. I was very fortunate because I learned to do many things. After basic training, I was assigned to the 217th General Hospital and uh, they was in great need at that time for male nurses to work in the operating room. Now we had female nurses there, but the their job was on the wards rather than in the OR. So I was, my first experience in, in there was I was transferred to a psychiatrist. And one day I asked him how come he, I was only there about three weeks. And one day I asked him, I said, why did you study psychiatry? And he said, don't you know, heal thyself. So I thought he was referring to me and not him at the time. Well, while I was there about two or three weeks, the head surgeon came down to see me. And he looked me in the eye and he says, are you afraid of blood? I says, good Lord, no, I was brought on a farm we slaughtered cows or uh, uh, beef and pork and, and all the deer and moose that come too close to the house. I said, no, I'm not afraid of blood. He said, do you think you could stand on your feet for 12 hours and work in the operating room? And I said, well, I think so, and why not? So there I was in the operating room in about, oh, I took, a week. I took a week to uh, to get accustomed to the routine, 
And then I assisted in operation from then on. And that was a great experience. I, I really liked to do it. I, I kind of, I, I, if you ever, any nurses here, you know that doctors like to call for their instruments in a certain way. And different doctors have different ways of doing it. Some stick up the fingers and some do other things. But I memorized the way they went and I anticipated what they wanted for instrument. And I would immediately snap it in their hand even before they asked. And the doctors liked that. So I worked in almost every operation they had for about 12 hours a day, every day, without any time off. So that was my time in the operating room. Now, later on, the war kind of cooled off for a while, and the operating room didn't have very many customers because they were patients, not customers. So they was transferring the wounded to England rather than operating there on the thing. So they asked me if I would be the non-commissioned officer to set up field hospitals on the way uh, to follow Patton's army on the way. That was the end of the war and you know how gory that was. Now I want to go back to the hospital for just a minute. You know, we work hard and you try to put all the thoughts away and just concentrate on the job that you're doing, regardless of how gory it was or how bad it was. We just concentrated as hard as we could on the job itself. But there's always one little incident, incident that kind of sticks in your mind. Our priority in the operating room was to take care of our own wounded first, our allies second, and our enemy wounded last. Well, there was this little German boy sitting out in the hallway all day long, way late. I, we'd been working all day long and way late, this German boy, uh, the doctor motioned to bring him in now, so I brought him in. He examined him and he motioned to me that he was beyond help. So I took him back and put him in a ward and the attendant put him in a bed. And when I did, he started talking to me in German. Now this little kid wasn't more than 12 or 15 years old. And you know, it kind of breaks my heart even today to just think about it. He started to talk to me and I motioned to him and I couldn't understand Germany, but I'd be right back. Well, I knew a nurse that was of German descent that could speak German. So, I ran over to her barracks and I asked her if she would come over and talk with him. And 
she was more than willing to do that. So we ran back to the OR and she started talking to this young boy. And you know, this young boy told her all about his mother, how great she was. And you know, the army always refers to their mother. And then he says, I know I'm going to live because I feel so good. This young boy took a, 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 a deep breath and he died right there. And this poor nurse just broke down in tears. And I brought her back to her barracks and she crying when I left her. But that stuck in my mind for all this time. Now, the, as I was saying, the wall was tapering down. The operating room wasn't so busy. So they came to me and asked me if I would be the non-commissioned officer to help set up field hospitals. And I said, oh yeah, I was always willing to take on new things. Now I was just a kid myself, 19 years old, but they had a great deal of faith in me for some reason or another. And I don't know why, but they did. Well, before I went on that duty, they gave me a week's vacation because we worked so hard in the operating room. And every six months they would give us a vacation anyway. And we could go anywhere we wanted within a parameter of places. So I went down to Cannes and Nice, France, in Southern France. And I toured perfume factories and smelt all the flowers and watched the ocean ebb and flow. And then I went back to my uh, place in the 217th Hospital and I promptly was shipped to Patton's Army so I could set up field hospitals. Now we was behind Patton maybe four or five miles, I, I don't know exactly. So as he moved forward, we moved forward. I, I don't feel comfortable telling you all the things that happened there, but one of the first things I did as being in charge of this hospital was covered up the Red Cross sign on the top of the tent because it was a, it was a target for the Germans, you know, I saw a couple of them, they got blowed up. So immediately I went out and covered that up so that wouldn't happen anymore. Well, finally, as Patton moved on, you probably know the story of Patton, how he moved on. Thinking of Patton, I want to tell you another little story. Eisenhower was sick. And he came to our hospital in 217. The hospital's called De La Petite Hotel De La Petite, which means little hospital, but it really wasn't very little. You drive in, there was a rotunda, and on 
barracks on one side and the hospital on the other side. Well, when Eisenhower was in the hospital, Patton came to see him. Even the doctors stopped operating and we all went to the windows to watch Patton drive in with his entourage, you know. He got out and strutted around. He had his pistols on. He looks all around, then walks off. <laughs> then we went back to work, and that's that's Patton. Well, now the war was over. They had dropped a bomb, and the war was over. Now, first I had signed up to go to the Asia Theater, and they put us in a uh, holding tank. It was oh, eight or ten of us guys, and they put us in a holding tank waiting there. Seems like forever. But later on, they came over the loudspeaker and says, the war is over. You're eligible to go home if you want to. So naturally, I went home. Went home to the farm. Now, I wanted to settle down. I had enough of Paris and the bright lights and all that, and it just wasn't my cup of tea. I just didn't care for that life at all. And I wanted to move in a little town called no name and live a quiet and peaceful life. I wanted to find a wife, have a bunch of kids, and live just a quiet and peaceful life, as Paul says. But that kind of wasn't to be. I had worked in a woolen mill when, before I went in the army summers. And the boss weaver called me and asked me if I'd like to have my old job back. And of course, money was still scarce in 1946. So I said yes. So I went in the mill. And in those days, if you wanted to learn a trade, what you had to do was pay somebody to teach you. Well, there was this fellow that liked to smoke. And he says, Charlie, if you'll watch my rooms for me while I go out and have a smoke, then I'll teach you how to weave. So I hurried up and got my job done, and I'd watch his rooms, and he'd run out, puff, puff, puff on his cigarettes and come running back. And uh, he taught me how to weave. Well, these were automatic rooms. They had I, I can't describe all of what they were, but they have many harnesses and many threads running through them. And you could weave, plain weave, one up, one down. You could weave uh, twill weaves on them. You could weave herring bones on them. And I wondered just why you couldn't weave other things on them. So I signed up to get a correspondence course from uh, Rhode Island School of Divi Design on how to design the room. Now you have to design the mechanism 
that makes the harnesses go up and down. And uh, it was really very simple, but there wasn't too many people that do it. There was a few, but there was only a few that would work nights. And they asked me if I would go on nights and weave samples for the next year's orders. And I said, yeah, sure. And that fit me fine because I was building a house. And I want to tell you about the house in a minute. Well, as, as I learned to weave and learn, learn how to adjust the looms to do certain things, I started weaving samples for next year's orders. And that was kind of fun. There was me and another fellow. And then later on, they got behind on the orders. They wanted to know if I would oversee a, a couple of battle, uh, batches of looms that the, loom, that the attendants were running. And I said, yes. So now I was a night supervisor in the mill. Now, after the war, I, I wanted to build a house. Now today, if somebody says, I'm going to build, I built a house, what they mean is they hired somebody to build it. That's not the way I built mine. I and my father cut the logs in his woodlot, pine for the boards, hemlock for the dimensional lumber. Uh, we scooped out the basement with a pair of horses and a hand scoop. I built the foundation to pour the, the uh, cement in, my father and I, with a gas cement mixer. And we filled in the, the foundation all the way around. We had a basement then. And now this was late fall. So we covered up the building, the, uh, the forms, and laid the lumber on top and some tar paper and covered it all up. And the next spring, I started to build my house. Now I had, we cut the logs in the woods. I borrowed a truck to haul the logs, or I hauled the logs out of the woods to the side of the road with the horses. I borrowed the neighbor's truck to move the logs to the sawmill. Now this sawmill was driven by water power between two lakes, where the water ran between two lakes, and it was a bucket type. And it went fairly slow, but man, that old saw, you could hear it humming going through those logs. It was going so fast. When I was up there, I, I, I'm writing my bios as well. And when I was up there after my wife died in August of 19, uh, of 2017, I drove up to North Wayne and I looked for the old sawmill, but it, there was nothing left. It was all, all gone. I was kind of sad. Now, Building my house, I had a neighbor that was a carpenter. And I had never built anything bigger than a rabbit cage before that. So 
this neighbor says, I'll tell you what to do every night. You do that in the daytime because I would work at night in the mill. And then the next night I'll tell you how to proceed. So I built this house. It's still setting today, strange as it may seem. I was up there and looked at it. My daughter, who is right there listening right now, was, uh, was up there and looked at it and even saw the chimney that I built with a little bend in it. So it's my trademark, you know. Uh, so it had two rooms upstairs in the attic, like, and then downstairs it had a kitchen, a living room, and a bedroom and a bathroom. And uh, I built that all myself, and uh, we lived in it for about four or five years. Now that's just about the end of my journey that I can tell you about today. Of course, there's a lot more and there's a lot of little things. You know that we have to fight the storms of life. Now, I want to tell you how I got saved. I, as I had worked for Albany Felt Company and I set up this little shop, I also, and we made a lot of money the first year, and my little brain says, gee, that would be nice if I set my own company up and made that amount of money for my, myself. So I did just that. I quit the company, set my own company up, and operated it for four or five years. In the meantime, there was another company that wanted to buy me out but I didn't want to sell. I was doing very well. But finally he did. But anyway, my job working for that company was to call on customers. And I was religious, but not saved at that time. Now, as time went on, whining and dining customers, I became very depressed. I mean, very depressed. I can remember sitting in my office almost all day long, thinking how I'm going to get out of this mess and uh, without anybody knowing it. I even thought of suicide from time to time. But anyway, later on, uh, I was coming home and I saw two Mormon boys walking. You know how the Mormon boys go around the neighborhood looking for somebody to convert. So I went home and told my wife, I'm going to get down and see those Mormon boys and bring them home and ask them a bunch of questions. So she said, okay. Well, I couldn't find them. I went back and they were gone. So I said, well, let's go to the Mormon church on Sunday. So we did, but we were late. So now I said, <laughs> let's go to the nearest church that is open and we'll just go in. Uh, and so I went into the church and it was Bethany. It was uh, 
Bethany Community Church in Tempe, Arizona. They was very nice, very small at the time, just a small community church. They welcomed us in. They invited us back. They told me about a Bible study on Tuesday morning, invited me down, and I went. Didn't understand the thing they were talking about. Went back the next Tuesday, and the guy said, I want you to stay over because I want to talk to you. So I did. So he talked about salvation, and I told him, no, I wasn't saved. That I didn't think I was somebody that could have a religious experience. And all he said was, well, we'll see. So the next week, he started in again, and he went through the whole gospel presentation in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He went to Romans uh, 6, 23, and he went to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and 13. Finally, the light came on. I said, gee, I should have saw that before but then he says is that something you think you would like for yourself and i said yeah i think it is he's i said but i i don't know what what to do and he says well i'll tell you he says you need to pray and ask god just tell God that you know for sure that you're a sinner. And there wasn't any doubt in my mind about what I was a sinner, all right. So that was easy to do. And then he says, on your own words, just talk to God and tell him what you want. And so I did. Now, I know it wasn't very pretty. And probably he was laughing behind the scenes. But it worked. On the way home that day, I says, that I was kind of silly. A grown man like me doing this simple thing like that. But you know, as the next day I started open my Bible and I started reading. So then instead of sitting in my office all day long, I spent the next four years studying all I could. I studied the Bible. I went to every seminar I could find. And there was a lot of them around Phoenix at that time, different churches having seminars. I bought lots and lots and lots of books. And I read a lots of books. And I asked him one day what I should study. And he just says, follow your desires. Well, my desire was to study uh, theology more than anything else. So I have a, a great bit of knowledge. I wouldn't say a great, but I had knowledge in theology from quite a bit. I call it Theology 101. And now, and after that, of course, I studied the Bible every day. People have asked me from time to time, I, I, oh, six months after I got saved, I started a jail ministry. A fellow invited me out to the jail 
And uh, I was with him about three or four weeks. We noticed that the fellow that followed him at the same time wasn't coming in for his service. So he said, Charlie, why don't you take it? I said, gee, I don't think I know enough. And he says, that's okay. Just tell them you don't know if they ask you a question. So I went down. I was afraid. I wasn't afraid for myself because the clanking doors behind me never bothered me. I was afraid they'd ask me something that I didn't know. But you know, these inmates never asked me a, a single question. Uh, they just listened. And then I said, gee, this is a great ministry. So I had the jail ministry for, after that, for 34 years, 32 on the line. And then the last two years, I just was a scheduler because we had 30 or 40 volunteers that I had to schedule for. So I think that kind of brings you up to where I am now. And I think that the combination of all your experiences is really what you are as a person, as a conglomeration of these hard times in Charlie, hold on a second. Are you there? You're frozen. Hold on a second. Let's see if I can get you back. <laughs> 